it was my third deposition. And uh, first thing he says is, and I'll make up a name here. He says, Mr. Silva really appreciates what you did for him. He does realize that you saved his life. So I said to him, I saved his life and he's suing me? He says, yeah, yes, we are. All of a sudden, the door just flung open, and in walked the oldest practicing attorney. It turns out, because it's a small state, he was also my patient. So he looks at the plaintiff's attorney, and and I swear this is exactly what he says. He looks at the guy, and he says, Bill, Bill, see this guy? Points his finger at me. This guy saved my life. The absurdity of it is, is, is beyond, and I'm laughing. And I say again to the attorney, the plaintiff's attorney, he says, I saved your client's life. I saved your partner's life and you're still suing me? He goes, oh yeah, yeah, we are. And that's when I realized it was all about the money. It wasn't about whether I had done anything right or anything wrong, and in the attorney's world, everything is different. Welcome back to this podcast, Doctors and Litigation, The L Word, a podcast for physicians exploring the complex world of medical malpractice litigation and the psychological impact it has on us. Today, we are talking about preparing for your deposition, both practically and psychologically. Now, as we talked about in the previous podcasts, and I do recommend that you listen to these in order, depositions are part of the initial stage of the lawsuit called the discovery process. Much of the discovery process is done behind the scenes from our perspective, both parties asking for records and information, and you may have to answer some questions and writing called interrogatories, and you'll do that with your attorney's input. But after you're initially served, usually the next most highly acutely stressful time in the lawsuit is the time leading up to your deposition, which could be a while from the time that you're named. And those feelings of isolation, frustration, anxiety, anger, Whatever brew of emotions that the stress of litigation brings out in you that accompanies this process might have faded into the background for a while, but they'll likely really start to pick up again here. I know I did start taking Ambien, and I feel like I got kind of too dependent on that to sleep for a time period. I was going through the depositions, and I was really stressing myself out, like not eating, not sleeping. And I got pregnant at that time and miscarried shortly afterwards. And obviously causality is difficult to prove, but I always felt that that was part of the reason why. The associated stress really can be debilitating. And so this is where some of those self-care tips that we talked about in the last podcast really become important. And in the last podcast, we also talked about the value of shifting how you think about this process to understanding how this is largely not about right and wrong. And often it's more about money than justice. Here's Dr. A, the physician you heard at the beginning of this podcast. I've done uh, about 75,000 procedures in my 25 years here. And I've done a lot of advanced procedures, and uh, I've never got one suit for the things I did badly. And that's how I deal with it mentally. You know, when I get served, you know, you're just getting served a request for money. And that's my, uh, how I deal with it mentally. You'll hear his voice a few times during this podcast. He's an incredibly skilled and experienced physician who's been down this road a few times, and he's got some great tips. So... We as physicians are used to being on the spot, taking heavy-duty exams, oral boards, you name it. And we definitely can stress about those, but the deposition, 
is a different kind of examination. In this case, the examiner really wants you to fail. And they are specifically trained in ways of questioning that put you off your guard or trick you into saying things that you don't mean, whatever they can do to get you to paint yourself and your case in the worst possible light. However, just like passing your boards, this is something that you can learn to do well. And the more you know and the more you practice, the less anxiety and the more confidence you'll have. But it's virtually impossible to do this well without preparation because this is not like medicine. This is a different world. For those of us who have had oral boards, imagine trying to pass them if no one had ever taught you the strategies involved in passing them. You could know the medicine inside and out, but still fail because of your lack of, quote, boardsmanship, so to speak. And the same applies here. Your lawyer should prepare you well, but I think your training can start now. I happen to personally know that a good physician can make a horrible deponent, but that these skills can be learned and learned well. And how do I know this? My name is Ryan Dady. I'm a civil litigator practicing with the law firm Barton Gilman in Providence, Rhode Island, with a focus in medical malpractice defense. And I know you because? I um, interacted with you for uh, about uh, a decade. You, yeah, uh, a little more, right? A little more than a decade. Weren't you there right. from the very beginning with me? Uh, no, I came in a little bit uh, after. the. So your suit was filed in 2007, and I was hired by the firm in 2008. It's been so long that it's hard to keep some of these details straight, but I saw the patient in 2006. I was named soon after in 2007, and Ryan joined our case as a junior attorney assisting the partner in 2008, at the time with a different law firm, not Barton Gilman. I was obviously fresh out of uh, law school when you and I first met and uh, was very excited and enamored with the law, right as you were becoming very distressed by the process uh, of the civil litigation world. Distressed, I think, would be a a good word. And I remember um, our senior attorney. Uh, at the time, I think he said that I was one of the worst defendants that he'd come across. I don't know if he ever relayed that to you. It, he did. He did, actually. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it was kind of a um, running list of what not to do as a defense witness and a deponent. Okay, did you get that? I was one of the worst defendants ever. I was a running list of ways to be a horrible defendant. Because no one ever talked to me about this. I had no idea how to manage my emotions about this. No one had ever advised me about how to be. I was clueless. And that cluelessness combined with my emotional lability made me really bad at this. And Ryan was given the seemingly insurmountable task of teaching me how to do this right. I had a task list of things we needed to work on with you to get you where you ultimately ended up being, which was, as was conveyed to me, one of the best trial witnesses um, that he had seen. Okay, now, did you hear that? I became one of the best trial defendants that senior attorney had ever seen. Granted, that happened over like 10 years, and I'm hoping to speed that up for you, but it can be done. It can be done to the point where I actually invited my residents to come watch me testify at my second trial to learn how to do it. That's how confident I became. This is a process that you can learn about. And once you have the skills under your belt, the anxiety will lessen. So 
let's start at the beginning. Oh wait, before we get much further in this, I have to tell you again that I am not a lawyer and I cannot give you legal advice and you should always defer to your own attorney. But let's talk about guiding principles and what you can likely expect in this process. So first, what is a deposition? A deposition is the sworn testimony of a witness, and you are a witness and the defendant, taken before trial, during the discovery phase. This is usually the first time you'll meet the plaintiff's attorneys face-to-face, and their first opportunity to size you up as a defendant, to see how you might hold up during the process, how you might appear at trial. So it's important to look confident and professional. I asked Counselor Dady, or Ryan as I call him, to describe a typical deposition that a defendant might go to. Think of a long conference room. The court reporter will typically be sitting in one of the chairs um, at either end of the conference room table. That way they have plenty of room to set up their stenography machine. And every lawyer has her seat that she likes to sit in when she takes a deposition. Is there like a home team advantage? Like, do they say where you get deposed or like, how do you, who decides where you go? Yes, it's, there's a home field advantage. That's a great way to put it. When I am taking a deposition as defense counsel of the plaintiff or one of the witnesses and I notice the deposition, it takes place at my office. When you as the defendant are being deposed, the plaintiff's lawyer is noticing that deposition. It takes place at his or her office and they pick the court reporter. Uh, stenographer, just like you see on the court TV shows, uh, taking down every word that's said and is literally creating a, a transcript that will print out and look like a book of question, answer, question, answer. And I know I should not speak in absolutes, but I'm going to go out on a limb and speak in an absolute here. The lawyer taking the deposition is never in the conference room when you as the witness arrive. Many physicians have likened the litigation process to theater. Everyone has their role to play, including you, and this is your first taste of the drama. Wherever it is that you are being deposed, most likely you will have a seat and wait. And stew a little while. Expect this. And instead of building your anxiety during this time, use it to focus. Remind yourself of some of the tips and tricks we'll be talking about shortly. Chat with the stenographer or the other attorneys. Take them up on the glass of water that hopefully you'll be offered. And if not, ask someone for one. You'll want it. Don't worry, because if you need a bathroom break later during the deposition, you are allowed to ask for one. Get comfortable, because you are about to get your game on. Now, one other thing. As Ryan said, there will be a word-for-word transcript that comes out of this session. It will be your sworn testimony. What you say in this deposition is going to be poured over later, mined for holes in your defense. If you go to trial, your words will be quoted back to you. And keep this in mind as we talk more about strategies and what your role in the deposition really is. Now, as I said before, Your deposition is not just the opportunity for the plaintiff's attorneys to question you about the events and your chart. It's a chance for them to size you up, to evaluate how well you would appear to a jury at trial. What I said before about theater becomes crucial at trial. You have to be convincing to a jury in your role as a capable, confident, caring physician. 
the plaintiff's attorneys know what a jury is looking for, and you have to play your role. This is the opportunity where the plaintiff's attorney gets to see you in person for the first time. That's Dr. Eileen Brenner, author of How to Survive a Medical Malpractice Lawsuit, whom you heard from in the second podcast. Ryan agreed. Are they also basically sizing you up as a defendant? I mean, as a like as how you'll look at trial? Oh, yes. And <laughs> not just the plaintiff's lawyer. Your counsel is sitting next to you sizing you up while you're answering your questions. And we've been sizing you up throughout the process and throughout your prep sessions. But this is our opportunity to see you on the hot seat and see how you respond to that plaintiff's lawyer so that we can make our assessment and go back to... Uh, make the recommendations that have to be made, that, that sometimes you have to say, look, this case is defensible, but this doctor does not come across well as a witness. I did not appreciate this when I was starting. So much of this is really the optics of how does, how does the physician look to the eyes of a jury? It is, yes. And don't get me wrong. A plaintiff isn't going to say, or a plaintiff's lawyer, I should say, isn't going to leave a deposition and say, wow. That Dr. Pensa, she was so impressive. She was calm. She was composed. I left that deposition thinking, that's the emergency room doctor. I want to treat my child in the middle of the night. I'm dismissing this case. That's never going to happen. What is more likely is that a deponent falls all over themselves. They look like an easy mark. Shark who uh, smells blood in the water. Right, right. The assessment of how well you will perform as a witness and how you will present to a jury is considered by both sides for a variety of reasons, including, okay, is this one that's worth mediating? Is this one that's worth talking settlement? Plaintiff thinks, and I'm obviously making the numbers up here, um, we think this case is completely defensible and a no-pay case. Plaintiff thinks this case is a $10 million case. After depositions, people both see what the performance is, and okay, maybe we're somewhere closer to the middle. So even though it's really unlikely that the case will be dismissed based on your deposition, as much as we all hope that would be the case, it's still important to perform your best. And maybe, just maybe, if there are multiple defendants and you are more of a bid player, your performance at deposition may work in your favor. Here's Dr. Brenner again. So maybe the person's problem occurred in the ICU, but they sued anyone whose name was on the chart. You're the emergency physician. You really didn't contribute to any malpractice up on the floor, but you've been pulled in. The greatest way that you're going to stay in a case you should not be in it is by looking like a horrible potential witness. So you want to be ultra professional, ultra calm, and you want to look sharp. You want to make that plaintiff's attorney think, oh, this one is going to make me look bad. I don't want them in the case. I've got all these other guys who are really more important anyway, so I'll let them out. Whether that plaintiff's attorney thinks you're going to be a good or bad witness matters. Whether you get dropped or not, it all matters. And if your attorney says you need to dress like this for the deposition, then you dress like that. And you spend whatever you have to spend. Okay, deposition checklist. You want to be polished, you want to look professional, you want to be calm and in control. And you know what? 
that takes practice and know-how. And it also takes managing your emotions. If you are not mentally well, if you're in a bad place, then you're not going to be good at your deposition. You're not going to be good at trial. And so you do have to address those psychological issues that are making you a bad witness. So before we get to more of what will make you a good deponent, let me say this. Failure to manage your emotions, failure to deal with the psychological stress of this is a sure way to be a bad deponent because that shark in the water will know it and leverage it. And that was my issue. What exactly made me so bad when I started? You can, you don't have to hold anything back, but because I know I got better. So what, what was really, what made it bad? Oh, I was defensive. I know that. Yes. Super defensive. You, you felt that you should not have been there. Your initial attitude to the process was, you guys are my lawyers. Why haven't you made this go away yet? And that, that's one of the common misconceptions is that um, I can somehow wave a magic wand in this case is going to go away. And a, a dismissive doctor is a doctor who is almost invariably going to end up in a trial because their own comments, their own demeanor, their own words at deposition are going to give the plaintiff's lawyer ammunition. You have a plaintiff's lawyer who's good, you have damages that are considerable, and you have a doctor who's dismissive, but did the job correctly and did a good job with the medicine, that's a case that's going to trial nine times out of 10 because we're going to get positive expert reviews on the substance of the care. We're going to have, therefore, an insurance company that does not want to pay the outrageous settlement demand that it would take to resolve the case given the high level of damages involved. And you have a plaintiff's lawyer who says, a jury's not going to like this doctor. Which means they'll take their chances for a big win at trial. Of course, doing a great job at deposition doesn't mean you won't go to trial. In my defense, I'll say that in the end, I did give a very good deposition once I'd learned the rules. But I went to trial anyway. Twice. I know I haven't told you the details of my case yet. Someday. But let me say this. It was a high-value case and very complicated medicine. And although, at first, I was really flattened by the thought that I must have missed something. After reviewing the case and having favorable outside reviews, I realized I didn't miss anything. This was a case no one was going to solve in time. And after realizing that, well, I was mad. Well, I was a lot of mixed up emotions, but mad was definitely one of them. I didn't want to be there, and I let that be known. You may be just as bitter as I was, but you just can't let it show. You don't want to be snarky. You don't want to act like you know everything. You just want to answer the questions as motionless as possible in a direct way. And again, they think if you're unhinged in the deposition, if you sound condescending, then you're going to sound like that to a jury and jury's going to hate you. And if you sound like the jury's going to hate you, well, then the plaintiff loves you. They love to bring people like that to trial. Yes, they do. Juries don't know medicine, and much of their decision is based on emotion, on whether they like you. And that thing she said about not acting like you know everything, yeah, that was a problem for me, too. It's a funny thing. Doctors are sometimes their own worst enemy. And I think one of the primary reasons for that is doctors 
in most situations, including in a deposition or uh, in a lawsuit situation, tend to be the smartest person in the room. And that sometimes is used by skillful lawyers to their detriment. I remember Bill telling me, stop acting like you're the smartest person in the room. And I got really mad. I was like, you know what? About this particular topic, I am the smartest person in the room. None of you people are doctors. You don't know the medicine. I have to explain this to a bunch of people that don't understand it, and it's just not fair. And I was mad. And and that's a, a common and very understandable reaction. And it's the lawyer's job to take your knowledge and your expertise and, and all of that skill, all of that training, and distill it down and present it in such a way and, and to tell a story in such a way that a layperson can understand it. Remember, you will at this point have gone over your case many times with your attorney. Your attorneys know the case's strengths, they know its weaknesses, you will have helped them with understanding your medical choices, you will have vented your emotions to them, most likely, and they also have probably had some external reviews of your case as well. So your role at the deposition is not convincing anyone of anything or teaching anyone about anything. Your role here is to answer the questions they ask you honestly, directly, succinctly, and as a consummate professional. And to be able to play this role, you need emotional control and an ability to detach yourself, at least temporarily, from the emotions that you have about being in this lawsuit. So this is where that reframing that we talked about in previous podcasts really comes into play. You must reframe how you think about the experience of the deposition. Stop thinking about it as a way to explain your way out of a case or as a way to air your grievances about being in it. Stop thinking of ways that you could educate the plaintiff's attorney into seeing that you're not really at fault or that you don't deserve to be there. This is not about whether or not you deserve to be in that seat. This is strategy and theater and you have a role to play and you will put aside your emotions and play it accordingly. You know how to do that. As physicians, we constantly have to manage our emotions and present a professional veneer to patients under all sorts of circumstances. You can do it in this context too. So now that we've spent some time talking about the psychology of deposition, let's get concrete. I'm going to give you a list now of ways to practically prepare yourself before the deposition and some tips and tricks to use while you're actually in the hot seat. You should definitely talk with your lawyer about their advice as well and practice as much as you can until you are actually as confident as you are going to seem to be. So, number one, before the deposition, get to know your chart. Your attorney will have obtained all the relevant documents that you need to go through. And I don't mean just knowing the basic medical events. I mean knowing everything in it, what you wrote, how you phrased it, why you phrased it that way, the order of the times, nursing notes, secretary notes, anything that pertains to the time around which you saw the patient that you technically should have been aware of at the time that you saw them. If you don't have an explicit memory of the patient, this is all you're going to have. If you do have recollections about what happened independent of the chart, make sure that you have discussed these with your attorney. You will be asked about them at deposition. You don't have to have the chart memorized. You'll be given a copy of it at deposition, but you'll be going through that chart word by word, line by line, and it's important to anticipate what you might be asked about it. Here's how one doctor put it. 
very often you're not going to remember every little detail of the interaction and everything's going to be based on your chart. We basically went line by line by line through my chart and the nursing chart starting from point A to point Z. So I, I can't say that enough is that your chart is, is basically the Bible for, for any case. The lawyers will fixate on every little word. Now, notice that I was talking about the chart that surrounds the time of your immediate care, not anyone else's. It's actually best not to closely review the charts involving subsequent encounters or co-defendants because then you'll be deposed about that and you don't want that. Just know everything about everything relevant to your care of the patient as much as you can possibly remember. Your attorney will tell you whatever you need to know about subsequent events or have you review what they feel is important. And then when you're asked about it at deposition, you can say you only know what your attorney has presented to you. And then it's protected. Point number two before deposition, be careful about researching medical literature surrounding your case. On the one hand, it is critical that you are correct about relevant medical knowledge. But on the other hand, they may ask you if you've done any research on the condition in question, what you read, what it said, if you made any notes. So the best way to handle this is as an attorney-client work product. Discuss any research you do with your attorney and keep any notes as correspondence within that bubble so when you're asked about it, it's protected. Your lawyer's objections will keep it that way at deposition. Point number three before deposition. Know what the weak spots are in your case and in your charting. Think, if you were counsel on the other side, and if you didn't actually know how medicine worked, what might you zoom in on? And then, how would you articulate your answers to these questions? You can help your attorney understand the case better and where you think the holes are. They'll have their own ideas, and they'll also have outside expert reviews that have yet other things to talk about. All of those ideas are fair game and worth preparing for. If you're not great with answering questions on your feet under pressure, it helps for you to think ahead about how you would articulate these thoughts. However, you will still be required to think on your feet at the time of deposition because there's no way that you'll be able to anticipate all of their questions, and some things will really seem like they're coming out of left field. But answering difficult questions in a succinct and professional manner is preparation in and of itself. Which brings me to number four before deposition, practice. Where the practice needs to come in is getting in the mindset of being in this very bizarre scenario. Let's face it, sitting across a conference room table, having given an oath and being told you understand that oath is the same oath you'll give in a court of law subject to the pains and penalties of perjury. And right away, your back is up and, and you're saying, oh, wait a minute, I am so far out of my comfort zone. So and where the benefit comes in is to put you through the rigors of being in that situation in a mock setting and just practicing answering questions in, in the way we talked about with being succinct, just answer the question, don't provide any more information than is called for by the question. And this is really hard for a lot of doctors. It was very hard for me. Our natural inclination is to explain things, is to teach medicine, to try to distill things down into understandable ways. But this is not your job here. Now, testifying at trial is a completely different matter. But in the deposition, you just want to limit your testimony to exactly what they're asking you and no more. Here's how Dr. A put it. 
I don't try to educate them. I think that's the worst thing you can do. You can pay for somebody to educate them if they want. Okay, pre-deposition number five. Discuss with your attorney how to handle being asked about co-defendants in the case, if there are any. Deposition is not the time for finger pointing. In the beginning, you're all friends and you don't want to say anything negative against them because the plaintiff wins in that situation. Do your best to avoid critiquing anyone else's care, as you don't actually know what was going through other physicians' minds, and the attorneys don't really care who's the most quote-unquote guilty. It's just about who's the most likely to look the worst at trial. Plaintiff's attorneys love when there's infighting, because it just makes everyone look bad. If your attorney instructs you otherwise, take their advice, but remember to keep your tone professional and unemotional, and your comments factual and limited to what they ask. Pre-deposition number six. Know your arrows and when to pull them out of your quiver. What do I mean by that? There's one exception to the do not educate the plaintiff's attorney rule, and that is if you have a real zinger in your defense that you need to hammer home, then do that. Dr. Brenner tells the story of one of her own depositions when she was being accused of not calling in a neurologist when in fact it was a neurosurgical issue. So when she was asked whether she called a neurologist, a simple no would have made her seem negligent to someone who didn't know the difference between the two, which is in and of itself very frustrating. They're suing you and they don't know the difference between a neurosurgeon and a neurologist. It's infuriating, but... But you can't be condescending about it. We know that in certain situations, there is no indication to call a neurologist when it's clearly neurosurgical. So in this case, a better answer would be, no, there was no indication to call a neurologist. Then let them ask their follow-up questions, which will illuminate the fact that you indeed called the proper specialist, the neurosurgeon. Sometimes explaining more does help, and again, that's why you have an attorney. But in general, the less you say, the better. Dr. Brenner wound up being dropped from this particular lawsuit. Here's what Ryan had to say about it. If you're the target defendant, by the time you're at a deposition and you're being questioned in this setting, we know where they're going. They've already planned out their cross-country trip through the discovery. The deposition is where they're planning which specific tourist attractions they're going to stop at. You know, where they're going to get crab cakes in Maryland. Where, where they're going to uh, look at alligators in the Everglades. That's what the deposition is for. So we're aware of that as well. And we already know what our primary defenses are. So there are arrows that every doctor should have in their quiver that will support their defense. And you are answering the question and answering just the question and offering no more information and being succinct as possible. Unless you're given an opportunity to pull one of those arrows out and shoot it down this guy's throat. That's what I want you to do. If you have the opportunity for a slam dunk, take it. And finally, number eight, just plan in advance for the actual day to make it just a little less stressful. Make sure you're not on call or working the overnight just beforehand. You'll usually be able to tell your lawyer ahead of time if there are dates where you can't be available and they will try to schedule it for a time that works for all parties. But once the date is set, it can be hard to move it and you are required to appear. Also, know what you're going to wear that day. Remember, you have to look professional. 
figure out where you have to be and when, and my personal favorite, have something scheduled to look forward to once the day is done. Whether that's a reservation for dinner or going for a bike ride or planning to hang out with your friends or hanging out with your friends Ben and Jerry on the couch while you watch an old movie. Just have something fun, relaxing, and non-work related waiting for you on the other side to look forward to. Okay, so now let's talk about some tips for game day. Your attorney will have many of these for you, and remember what I said about getting books on the topic, which will be even more comprehensive. Let's see what Dr. A had to say about this. I have my little things that my attorney has shown me how to do for a deposition. You know, there's, there's things he makes me do. He makes me sit very straight, with my back straight, my hands in my lap, my feet flat on the floor. He sits next to me. I answer the question. I answer only the question. And... Uh, when I start rambling, and I always start rambling, uh, he steps on my toe, and then I uh, stop rambling, and that's how it goes. You may or may not have an attorney who will literally step on your toes to get you to be succinct, so just keep that in mind. But whatever you do, tip number one at deposition is pay attention to your attorney. They're with you for a reason. So if they give you a signal or they object to something, be paying attention. You may have to answer the question anyway, but be on guard. Tip number two, take your time answering questions. Pause and reflect before you answer, even if you don't have to think about the answer. My attorney told me that I shouldn't just blurt out answers. You know, I was pretty good at school at just blurting out answers. And uh, so I don't do that. Before this, though, I'd, I'd read a little bit about people having discussions back and forth. And what I read was that the average time between someone talking and the person responding is incredibly short. It's 200 milliseconds. It's barely enough time to say a vowel. If you make that a little longer, it drives them nuts. So I play a little game. And my game is this. My game is to wait more than 20 milliseconds. So uh, like you're like I stopped there and I just stopped there for less than a second. And you sort of notice, well, what's wrong? He's just not sort of going smoothly through. Well, if you stop for a couple seconds longer than that, it really drives the attorneys nuts. It's the only control I have and it's my, it's my secret weapon during depositions. Even if that seems weird or unnatural, remember that unless it's a video deposition, which is much less common, what comes out of this is a transcript, just the words, not the pauses, not the inflections. So choose your words carefully and take your time choosing them. Now, plaintiff's attorneys also know about the impact of an unnatural pause. So tip number three, do not answer any question until that question is complete. If there is a very long pause, do not start talking in the middle of it. You may ask, are you done your question? Do not jump in and explain anything or finish anyone's sentences. Tip number four. If you're getting lost in a long question, ask the attorneys to break it down. You don't want to just accidentally say yes to something hidden in there. You don't have to answer these complicated run-on questions slash statements. You can ask them to rephrase it. Which part are you asking? The truth is, you don't have to let them entirely own the driver's seat. It seems like they have all the control, but you have more control than you think. 
Recognize when they are deliberately trying to confuse or manipulate you. Ask them to clarify. Break things into smaller questions. A little bit of humility is nice. You can say, I'm sorry, I'm having trouble following exactly what you're asking, and I want to make sure I'm giving you the correct response. Let's go back to the first part. Could you ask that more clearly? And when their questions are totally out of left field, which they may be if they don't understand the medicine and they haven't done their homework and they, for example, don't know the difference between a neurologist and a neurosurgeon, resist the urge to explain more than necessary to them why they're out of left field. You could say yes or no, or I can't really answer that the way you phrased it. It doesn't make sense. And again, your attorney will have specific advice for you and it's best that you follow their advice. But absolutely do not answer questions that you do not completely understand. If they have weird phrasing or are using different words than you would use in that situation, do not accept that language because it will come back at trial. And everything in that transcript should reflect exactly what you want it to mean. Which segues nicely into tip number five, which is be aware of verbal traps. There are many of these, and again, I recommend getting a book and practicing with an attorney, but you need to be on your guard against techniques that are routinely used, such as the use of hypothetical questions, confusing double negatives, overly vague questions that they want you to answer with a yes or no, or getting you to agree to a generalization that's not always true. And sometimes they ask questions after a very long and confusing statement. So let's go back. In the case of the hypothetical question, this is meant to pigeonhole you into saying you would always do X under a set of circumstances. But we all know that there are lots of variables in any case that might affect what you might do. So it might be best to say that you can't answer that question as you need more details. Be cautious when they ask you to agree or disagree with a generalized statement. Again, there are too many variables in medicine for you to make a sweeping generalization true or false. And in the case of them making a very long series of statements followed by a question, make sure that you agree with all of the statements leading up to that question. If they concern a number of lab values, ask to see the lab values. Make sure that those statements are actually true. You can even ask the stenographer to read back the series of statements to make sure that you agree with them step by step before you answer the question. So in handling any of these verbal traps, you're beginning to get the idea. You just want to make sure that what you say, what becomes part of the transcript, is under your control. It should be your truth, not theirs. Practice how you would respond in any of these circumstances. It is a skill that you can develop. And it's much easier to stay composed when you know what you're going to say when you recognize one of these traps to keep you from getting mired in them. Tip number six, what do you do if you don't remember? Then you say, I, I don't remember. And you leave it at that. What if they ask you a question you don't know? Don't commit yourself if you don't know. It could, could work against you. There will be things that you don't remember or that aren't in the documentation. And if you don't remember these explicitly, just say a deposition that you don't remember. In between then and trial, if your memory is refreshed, at trial you may say, I have seen documents in the meantime that have refreshed my memory, and now I do recall X or I do know X. And speaking of things that you do or don't know, let's talk about tip number seven, which is that 
no textbook, no journal, no specific article is the authoritative source of given medical information. You will be asked what you read, where you get your information, how you stay up to date, where you get your CME, and what textbook you think is the most authoritative one. And if you say that one of these is the Bible regarding the information in your case, then you better know everything that's in it regarding your case. The truth is that we get our information in various ways. Textbooks can become outdated, articles can be disproved. Most of us get our information from multiple sources. And there is nuance in medicine. Nobody gets all their information from a single source, and your answer should reflect that. Tip number eight. Although it's very important to look at the chart or lab values or anything concrete on paper when you're being asked a question about that, stop looking at it when you're done. There seems to be something inherent in the mind of a doctor, something in the biology of a physician, that if they have a medical chart in front of them, they cannot help but flip through the chart. A doctor will be given a chart and asked one specific question that he or she needs the chart to answer, but then the next 10 questions, and I'm trying to not jump out of my skin or kick the doctor under the table, the doctor's just answering the questions yes and no. Yep, yo, yep, yep. They're only half listening to what the question is, and they're reading that chart that's in front of them. As we've established, it's very important to be entirely focused on the words coming out of that attorney's mouth. And then... Well, you see, right here, this says, he didn't even ask you a question about that, doctor. Why are you providing that information? Just stick to the question that's asked and resist the urge that we all have to keep flipping through the chart when someone is talking to us. Tip number nine, take breaks. Take a break whenever you need one. Your day isn't gonna be short no matter what you do, so don't try to just power through it. Ask for a bathroom break, a snack break, whatever. Use that time to refresh, recharge, and speak with your attorney in private about how things are going. You can strategize and get feedback on how you're doing during these breaks as well. But take a little time to recharge. Eat something. Stay hydrated. Keep your energy levels up. Because when you're in that seat, you need to be able to stay fully focused. Tip number 10. My last during deposition tip is this. When it ends, and it will end, even though it seems like forever. When it ends... Do not talk to your attorney until you are well outside the building. Just get out of Dodge. The temptation is to debrief or emote or ask questions as soon as you're out of the office. But remember, just because it's not being transcribed doesn't mean the plaintiff's attorney or one of their colleagues won't hear or see you. And anything is fair game. You continue to play your role until you are somewhere far away where it's safe to let down your guard. So that was a lot for one day. I'm going to list some of these tips in the show notes just so you have them. And there's even more that you could learn. As I've said multiple times, there are books such as Dr. Brenner's and your primary source of advice should be from your attorney. Review the tips and most importantly, practice for your role on the big day. Even if it doesn't get you dropped or dismissed from the case, it will only help your odds of a favorable outcome for you. Your attorney should prepare you and one day, You may even be able to laugh about it. You did prepare me. It was sort of like a My Fair Lady thing where it became, it came to realize like I had to act a certain way. The rain in Spain 
Bulls baby on the plane. So, yeah, so I had to learn how to act like a regular lady. <laughs> I had to learn how to act a certain way. And I really did, and you will too. Remember, I had a long way to go when I started. You can do this. It's going to be okay. Many thanks to defense attorney Ryan Dady, Dr. Eileen Brenner, and the physicians who volunteered their expertise and stories to help all of us. Next month, we're going to talk about expert witnesses and be ready, because I've got a lot to say. Until then. Until then.